You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to another working week at Belaboured, where we are all recovered from the Super Bowl or maybe didn't watch it in the first place, Solidarity Colin Kaepernick. But in the spirit of all the things the rest of the world doesn't understand about, well, Americans, we've got two interviews from the bowels of American pop culture today. But first, the news. A brief update on something I talked about on episode 142. The German workers with the IG Metall union succeeded in winning their 28-hour work week, though not the full-time pay that they had wanted to go with it. They also won a 4.3% wage increase after a strike that saw workers at more than 80 companies take action. So, lessons for the future? In any case, wanted to move on to New Orleans, my former home, where in January the police and the Louisiana Office of Alcohol and Tobacco Control raided eight French Quarter strip clubs in a supposed human trafficking sting. They found no evidence of human trafficking, but suspended licenses at several of the clubs for violations unrelated to the coercion of workers. Dancers were handcuffed and questioned, excellent tactic for a raid that purports to be about their safety. And this, of course, has put hundreds of dancers out of work during the Mardi Gras season, one of the busiest times of year in that city, and one where many of them will make money they need to tide them through leaner times. But New Orleans dancers see themselves as anything but victims, and they've gotten rapidly organized to fight back. Lynn Archer of the Bourbon Alliance of Responsible Entertainers, or BEAR, explained, Stripping is a skilled trade like any other. It's also special because it exists in a the center of a cardinal cross of four labor sectors, service, hospitality, entertainment, performance, sex work, and creative freelance. That allows us to ally with workers in all these areas and help bring them together. When a city tries to pave us over, we stand in the road together. New Orleans, particularly during Mardi Gras season, is a place where sex and access to women's bodies in particular has always been part of the tourist draw. Yet Mayor Mitch Landrieu, whose sister, we should note, is the board chair of anti-sex work organization Covenant House, seems to want to change all that. Right after the raids, dancers went out to protest not just in the streets, but in a zoning board hearing where, conveniently, the City Planning Commission debated a proposal to radically shrink the number of strip clubs in the city. The dancers won the day there, but the plan to, as they say, Disneyfy the French Quarter and particularly Bourbon Street isn't going away. And I should say that as a college student, I worked on Bourbon Street in a jazz club as the door hostess, and plenty of my friends worked at the city's famed strip clubs. We were all, as Archer said, service workers who looked out for one another. Living in a city that the rest of the world sees as a place to go to behave the way they can't get away with at home has its ups and downs for sure, but what is undeniable is that the women I knew who worked in the clubs, in the strip clubs, that is, made much more money than I did. Now they're shut out of that income, pushed into a job market where most of their options will pay less, and the fastest option to make rent, as Archer and other dancer Lindsay note, might very well end up being the very same sex work that these campaigners are so concerned about. We seem to understand in this country that if you shut down a factory and throw hundreds of workers out of a job and into the street, they struggle. But apparently it's too hard for New Orleans public officials to see that they're doing the same thing to the dancers who make their city so appealing to the tourists who are basically the only driver of its economy. Since the Trump administration took office, there's been a slow war of attrition going on deep in the heart of government's leading labor authority. Across numerous regional branch offices of the National Labor Relations Board, top civil servants are finding their usually mundane regulatory functions becoming a new ideological battlefront for an administration bent on serving corporate America, even at its top labor agency. Staffers have been politically pressured, apparently, under the guise of restructuring, according to recent news reports and leaked memos. This is all happening under Trump's appointee, General Counsel Peter Robb. Uh, he was in town this week. A number of union members and NLRB workers uh, arrived to greet him with uh, protests. It shows that tensions are rising to a boiling point 
at least in the New York region, among NLRB staffers, as well as their union. And they feel that their duties, as well as the essential mission of the agency to protect workers, is being placed at risk by this administration. The restructuring has been particularly disruptive in light of recent business-friendly rulings at the NLRB on top cases, and uh, these have often reversed or halted pro-labor decisions under Obama. Currently, a Trump-appointed conservative majority controls the board, of course, and the impending staff changes seem to reflect those politics as well. According to leaked memos, the new leadership seems to want to consolidate decision-making authority in D.C. and is at the same time pressuring regional authorities to seek settlement rather than actual litigation in cases, which would significantly alter the nature of casework there and uh, potentially favor employers in many of these disputes. A staffer with NLRB, Mike Billick, with Local 29, told Bloomberg News, quote, the initial reaction was one of outrage. And the changes could very quickly result in a reduction of field operations, potentially redefine our roles and make it harder to perform our essential functions. So far, the opposition has not exploded into a real outright public conflict, but the fact that they were protesting publicly, at least in this small way, uh, shows that perhaps more trouble is brewing on the horizon. And with new decisions coming down in key cases in the coming months, you can be sure that the Trump administration will shed some more light on how it plans to make the National Labor Relations Board behave a little bit more like the National Management Relations Board. We're talking Minnesota in just a minute here for our main conversation, but there is plenty of labor unrest going around in the Twin Cities. The St. Paul Federation of Teachers is set to strike next week on February 13th unless the city meets its bargaining demands. Over 85% of teachers in the school system voted yes in their strike vote. If they go out on strike, it will be the first time since 1946, which was the first time in the U.S. that a teachers union formally struck, and that strike focused around equal pay for women teachers. The 3,400 teachers in St. Paul have been building power in their community for years now. I first wrote about their work back in 2014 at In These Times, and they've been following and expanding upon the model built in Chicago. Back then, the union was also close to striking and began inviting parents to bargaining meetings to build their connection. Class sizes expanded pre-K and more were on the menu then. This year, the union is calling for increasing staffing for English language learners and students in special education, expanding restorative justice practices in the St. Paul Public Schools, education for the whole child, which includes mental health supports and full-time licensed nurses, and of course, always, always those lowered class sizes. They have also been targeting in their campaign major corporations headquartered in the city who are not paying very much in taxes and are constantly lobbying to keep those taxes low, but are shelling out millions to be on the Super Bowl host committee. The teachers are planning safe sites for students whose parents have no childcare options should a strike take place. We will, of course, update you and hopefully have a guest from the St. Paul Federation of Teachers next episode. The world's oceans are a breeding ground for modern-day slavery. According to a new report by Human Rights Watch, in the massive fisheries industries in and around Thailand, there have been massive systemic problems with forced labor, Uh, labor trafficking abuses, regular beatings, wage theft. These abuses regularly occur, and many of the victims are migrant workers from poor neighboring regions like Myanmar. They have little legal recourse, of course, and due to the lax regulatory system and the endemic corruption throughout the Thai government, many of them have little hope of being rescued from their indentured servitude. The Thai government has insisted that it is addressing the problem following years of a steady stream of media exposés on the horrific conditions in the industry. But Human Rights Watch says that the problem persists and the EU and U.S. urgently need to increase pressure on Thailand to protect the rights, health, and safety of fishers. There is growing awareness among consumers uh, to make the supply chain more transparent and to better track where these products are coming from. Many of the mainstream frozen seafood brands uh, that turn up in our supermarkets come from these very same fisheries. 
The requirements that fishers hold their own identification documents, according to Human Rights Watch, receive a signed written contract and be paid monthly, are, quote, frustrated by employer practices which hold fishers in debt bondage and ensure that they cannot change employers. The lack of a standalone forced labor offense in Thai criminal law leaves a huge gap in law enforcement and deterrence. So as long as global demand for cheap imported seafood persists and global supply chain oversight remains pretty much non-existent, the problem shows no sign of abating. There have been moves in the EU, U.S. Congress, and the International Labor Organization to try to pressure Thailand, but since there's no real legal jurisdiction over these corporations, and with Thailand's pro-business government in power, international pressure can only have so much impact. Without a comprehensive international regulatory system strong enough to match the power of international corporate free trade deals, the slavery industry will continue to boom alongside the fisheries market across Southeast Asia, and yes, here in our supermarket freezers. At the Super Bowl in Minnesota last weekend, millions of Americans were gunning for an epic battle on the football field, but workers in the streets were gearing up for a much bigger battle against Home Depot in corporate America. We're going to talk now with two organizers with CTUL. That is a worker center working in Minnesota to organize janitorial and other service workers. And they have partnered with SEIU to help improve the labor conditions in some of these huge big box retailers. They've made remarkable progress in the past couple of years, but now they're putting the pressure on Home Depot to adopt a fair contractor policy. We're going to speak now with Emilio Miranda Rios, a CTUL member who used to clean Home Depot stores. And Ruth Schultz is organizing director. She's going to be translating here as well as commenting on her own. What are the actions that have taken place this weekend and why are you linking the Super Bowl to your campaign against Home Depot? So um, yesterday, Saturday morning, we um, we did a protest outside of the Hilton um, Hotel that hosted a breakfast for all of the outside Super Bowl guests. And so at that breakfast, there was a lot of rich people. Um, it's, it's these parties for the rich folks coming in to visit. And the corporations always want to um, support the rich folks and not do anything for the working folks and the poor folks who don't earn enough wages. And the Super Bowl host committee says they will leave a legacy um, for supporting child education, but really what we need for better education for our kids is for them to support a living wage for their parents um, and so their parents can support their kids getting a good education. And so also this weekend there's so much money going into the police, but really that money should be spent towards um, going to the schools, towards going to the hospitals and supporting people who are sick, but the corporations don't care about those people. And so that's why we're um, participating in many protests this week um, to show that we are not in agreement. Um, We don't agree that the corporation should spend so much money splurging on a big breakfast for their outside guests while, um, while the people, while poor people here are in need and the government um, isn't really doing anything about it either. And today um, we're supporting a protest that um, is blocking the light rail train rails because today working people can't get on the train because the train is reserved only for people who have a ticket to the Super Bowl. And that's why um, we're doing these protests again to um, bring this issue into the lives of the rich folks who want to have fun in their game, but we're going to bring some um, uncomfortableness to them um, because we're in the fight um, and we're, we're fighting for, for better wages and to be, be better provide for our kids. And how does this link into the uh, Home Depot support for the Republican Party and your um, sort of parallel demand for immigration reform and for DACA and for an end to deportations? 
Es que también yo, yo trabajé un tiempo como... So, um, I actually came to this fight as a retail janitor of Home Depot. I cleaned Home Depot stores um, for about seven years, and I saw how they contracted companies um, that were not responsible and that paid very low wages. You know, and Home Depot is the one who chooses what company they... Cleaning company they contract with, and that cleaning company is always paying the minimum wage. Um, we also see that Home Depot has supported many of the politicians who are not supporting DACA, who are not supporting immigrants. And so the president that we have today, he does not see that the young people are the future of this country. And um, instead, he wants to kick them all out. And he doesn't recognize that Immigrant families do pay taxes and we're hardworking and we contribute to this country. When politicians like Republican politicians are in favor of um, deporting immigrants, you know, it also creates um, an environment of fear where people um, are not, the politicians want to kick out the immigrants and they want to create a class of workers who are um, in fear and but continuing to work and when corporations also align with that same model um we have very you know we have poor wages we have poor working conditions and that's that's one way how we see home De home depot um connected to the immigration debate uh, i'll add one thing is that um because home depot has donated so much money to, you know, like the um, Republican Party and the House Republican Caucus, if Home Depot comes out in favor of DACA or in favor of a Clean Dream Act, that um, is also an indication to all of those politicians they've given money to um, that it's something they should support. So, um, you know, we see corporate influence in Congress and we want to unveil it and call it out and um, be demanding that corporations take a stance so that we can have um, a clean dream act in Congress. Um, are there, are there workers with families that are connected to DACA or benefiting from DACA right now at Home Depot that in your group? So I would just say, I guess there's no one right now who feels, safe to be public about that. There are um, other retail janitors, maybe not at Home Depot, but at who are cleaning other stores, Target, Sears, um, who have come out publicly and spoken um, that they are the parents of DACA recipients and that their children are part of this fight and are dreamers. Um, and so many, so there are, you know, members of Saitul who have children who receive DACA who are fighting like for their kids and their kids are also fighting to support them. Um, and, and that's why um, at the protest we did at Home Depot, the local immigration, immigrant rights groups and the DACA groups came out to support because they also see the janitors fight as representative of the struggle of their parents um, and linking the fights of the two generations. And right now, I mean, beyond the responsible contractor policy, there's also talk of actually workplaces and companies actually being proactive about uh, protecting their immigrant workers from ICE, um, you know, from from deportation in general, uh, you know, something like a sanctuary workplace. Is that something that your group has been pushing for or has also been uh, exploring? So, Saitul has been supporting um, the drive for a sanctuary city in Minneapolis and, and stronger sanctuary policies in the city of Minneapolis. We have not yet um, made that demand on a work site or a workplace. Um, but also, if the city is to enact, um, you know, sanctuary reforms or workers' rights reforms, we need the corporations to 
to pay their fair share instead of putting money into the Super Bowl like we're seeing today, that the money goes to the city for um, inspectors that can make sure that workers are making the wages and not getting their wages stolen. Uh, we need we need the institutions in our city and in our state to be supported, and um, the corporations don't want to do that. Um, I was going to say about the about the sanctuary work sites. Um, that's not something we've explored, but is is definitely um, something that something that we've heard about and are intrigued by. We have not yet um, made that demand of any work site. Um, one thing with Home Depot that we found is that they actually have some um, contracts with. Uh, there's like two detention centers um, in the southern part of the country, maybe one in Arizona, one in Texas, um, some with Customs and Border Patrol. And so our first demand to them was to cut any financial ties and cut those contracts with immigration enforcement and Border Patrol. So in the long term, what has been the public reaction? Um, and I guess have conditions improved since you have organized your union and begun this campaign for uh, the responsible contractor policy? I mean, has anything changed? And in our protests, we haven't um, won anything around the Super Bowl concretely, but what we've done is we've um, raised our concerns and brought some discomfort to um, all of the rich visitors and all of the all of the corporations that are set up here for the Super Bowl. I, I would say, um, sorry, this is this is Ruth, this is not what Emilio said, but that, um, you know, before the Super Bowl, we met with various people from um, the Super Bowl host committee, from labor liaisons with the NFL, because we did have, you know, certain demands and specific demands of things we wanted them to move um, before the Super Bowl. Um, and we didn't win any of those demands, but we did move the conversation about the import about the problem of wage theft and the importance of robust enforcement agencies. Um, we did move that conversation down the field with some of the um, larger business associations, like the Chamber of Commerce. As you know, we we do want to continue to talk with you about this after the Super Bowl. Right. And uh, about conditions improving since you organized the CTUL and, um, and I guess, you know, have been basically organizing as a union. The conditions have improved. Wages have gone up. Wages went up to $11 when they signed the contract, and it's about to go up again in March, another $0.25. Cents. Um, so workers are seeing um, steady raises. And then also, there's a lot more protections on um, the companies trying to move move workers to different stores and more, you know, control and more say that workers have over what stores they're actually located at. Um, that's another thing that workers have been um, focusing on, enforcing their rights and their contracts. And that was Emilio Miranda Rios and Ruth Schultz with CTUL talking about the mobilizations of workers during the Super Bowl this past weekend. While workers were doing battle of the Super Bowl in the Midwest over in Portland, another battle was underway at Burgerville. At the chain restaurant, the Wobblies have been organizing with the Burgerville Workers Union, and they staged a three-day strike and are now undertaking a boycott to call for better working conditions and to put pressure on the huge corporate management to treat its workers at all its stores fairly. I spoke with Kenan Schlesinger, one of the organizers with the union, and he talked about what it's like to work there and what the workers want. So uh, just talk about why you decided to go on strike, and I guess tell us a little bit about Burgerville and the history of your union. Sure. Yeah, so we are approaching two years being public um, in April, and the idea of going on strike came to us because it seems like there are very few tools that we have 
to be able to get the attention of Burgerville and get them to take us seriously as their workers and to, you know, enter into like a respectful negotiation. They have chosen multiple times to uh, ignore us. And like, frankly, they, they can ignore us and they, they will, it seems as though they will continue to choose to ignore us as, as long as they can. So the strike is a way to try to essentially communicate to them that we are willing to escalate and um, change our tactics to start to cause economic damage to them if we need to and to continue to, I guess, ex- explore more dramatic options. You are going on strike. What are the conditions like there? Are you under a contract? Um, you know, how does, uh, if you're a union, um, how does the, how does the, negotiation work how does the collective bargaining work and uh, why haven't those things worked so essentially we are completely unrecognized Um, the union is under the iww or the industrial workers of the world and burgerville corporate has essentially gone out of their way to uh, avoid acknowledging us in any way Uh, and they they do hire people to essentially intimidate and union bust all of our um, organizing activities. So, you know, the same crew of people will show up at our pickets, which we've been holding like pretty like regularly um, and strategically for like the past two years, basically. Um, and these people just show up to like in, in, intimidate us to um, at some points even like physically force us out of stores and push us and um, to verbally attack us at, at points as well. And um, there's there's really no collective bargaining process to speak of that's happened at this point. And that's essentially what we're trying to uh, spur into some sort of process. And so the the strike right now uh, serves to essentially get their attention and to let them know that like we're not going anywhere. We are, you know, here to gain recognition. We're here to to gain like material improvements in our working conditions. Burgerville is like trying to make us go away and they're trying to like play a longer game and they think that we're just going to like lose energy and that there's going to be some entropy that sets in and that we're just going to fizzle away but that's not the case and i think they're beginning to see that if you're not a formal union um could the employer just fire you and and if so what what's been what's been stopping them from doing that so far there's very little that's stopping them from doing it um, I think what makes us a union at this point is just the fact that we're workers that are organizing and we at in pretty much all of the stores or restaurants that we are public in, uh, we have like a deeper level of organization than um, management would like to admit. We have like very deep relationships with and among our coworkers. We you know, we, I guess like we have like a, a more profound and like deep connection to our coworkers and management can really like affect. And so when things start getting to the point where they're firing workers um, over, you know, very contrived allegations, um, workers get agitated and it really serves to bolster um this this the series of like grievances that that we have at any given shop um and so they are actually not serving themselves by by firing people i i was fired last week for example i i work at one of the busiest shops and i had i wasn't even employed there for very long i was employed there for maybe like all of two months before they you know essentially set forward to find a very flimsy and like not credible 
uh, reason to fire me. They essentially fired me for um, theft, even though um, I had been given permission to put soft serve in a cup of coffee. And that's what I was fired over. Um, so essentially they're, they've shown that they're willing to like identify people who are with the union, who are union sympathizers or union organizers. And they try to terminate anyone that they see as like a threat, um, with a lot of prejudice. And that's, that's what happened to me. And I think we're kind of like starting to see the extent that they're willing to go to, to kind of rid themselves of these organizers. And talk about what happened when you guys went on strike. Was it the whole enterprise that got shut down that day? Was it just um, they had to work at lower capacity? What was the impact? So we went on a three-day strike. Um, The store that I've been working at uh, went on strike first, and then um, three other stores went on solidarity strike. And there are 42 Burgerville stores in Oregon and Washington. And so it's, it's, you know, not something that we don't have the reach at this point to be able to like declare a strike at all 42 stores within their enterprise and have that happening like simultaneously. I think if that were the case, we'd have a lot more political power. We'd have a lot more uh, power and we'd probably be like recognized by now, but you know, the, the the situation right now is that we have um, a public presence in these four stores um, that are essentially like within the greater Portland metro area. And um, these f- four stores went on strike. Uh, management seemed to know that something was happening. So they brought in uh, workers and managers from other stores to try to fill um, the capacity that was, you know, being, uh, filled by workers that, uh, went on strike. And at the first store, like the, the store that's like near the Portland convention center, we had, I believe 14 workers that were on strike. Um, the union, um, I guess, uh, membership at that store is, well over 50%. I think it's closer to like 70. Um, But we are really seeing kind of like a lot of the effects of management's intimidation because a lot of longtime workers, a lot of longtime uh, union members and union sympathizers um, actually were like very hesitant to go on strike. But in, and that was like in the organizing leading up to the strike at the point that we went on strike Um, I think a lot of people were feeling galvanized and emboldened and things in our, in the stores where there's a union presence have like never looked kind of more cohesive and, um, and strong. I think everyone kind of like is getting the sense that like management can't and won't, um, just clean house and fire everyone, even though that's something that like does happen in labor movements, especially ones where there isn't like formal recognition, where there isn't a contract. But um, you know, every every time they they do something that is unlawful, we fire we we file a ULP, and um, you know we're we're getting traction with a lot of them. We've filed over 34 ULPs at this point, um, and so. You know, the National Labor Relations Board is is taking notice and they've have had to post notices and pay fines already um, on those ULPs. And we'll continue to have to do so until we get a contract and they stop violating labor law to try to rid themselves of union presence in their stores. Did any stores shut down altogether? (laughs) So that's interesting. Uh, I guess the week before we went on strike... Uh, we had a picket that was not related to strike or the boycott that we just called. It was just sort of a a picket that we staged at the convention center location and we timed it to happen while a Blazers, a a Portland Trail Blazers game was happening. And 
management knew it was coming and they actually, instead of like trying to deal with the picket line, they closed down their shop and they said it was uh, closed for repairs for maintenance. But everyone that was present at the picket line, every worker that uh, was scheduled to work at that time knew that that wasn't the case and that it was just like a, a pretext for, for closing and trying not to deal with like the brand damage and the economic damage. So that, that was interesting. That was like the first time that they've actually like opted to close their store instead of dealing with like the fallout from having like a picket, a very visible picket on a very visible street in, in central Portland. Um, but during the strike itself that happened this past week, uh, they didn't close any stores, even when in one case on Saturday, virtually every worker that was scheduled that wasn't in a management position walked off. Um, they, they, they would prefer to just call in managers to bring managers in on their day off to bring in workers from other locations that don't really know what they're doing um, to like, you know, perform whatever duties they can do just to keep the store open. I think it costs them something like kind of morally uh, in terms of their morale and in terms of like, like, I, I, I don't know. It's, it seems like they do everything they can to, to not close. Yeah. Um, so the inspiration for the union and I guess what it's like to work not just at Burgerville, but just in the city of Portland in general. I mean, you know, those of us on the other side of the country here um, have a certain view of Portland as perhaps a very uh, progressive but also very insular city in some ways. Can you talk about mm-hmm. how those politics play out, you know, for everyday working class people there? You know, what it, what it's like to uh, just, just, just struggle day to day with a daily grind, I guess. Yeah, um, that's you know that's a tough question to go about answering because i think the perception elsewhere in the country of portland is largely one that is a fiction um you know like portland for all of its progressive leanings for all of like the more liberal values that are here and very visible from the outside looking in aren't um, something that we always feel, um, especially when it comes to private companies or corporations or enterprises that like are interested in the bottom line, which is their profits. So in in the case of Burgerville and the workers there, they, they feel, it seems like based on like my relationships and understanding with my coworkers that, you know, like they feel that, it's it's really hard to to make ends meet. It's really hard to to pay rent. Portland is increasingly in a completely and utterly unaffordable place to live for renters making a minimum wage or something very close to it, which is uh, eleven dollars and twenty five cents starting out. And I think that's across uh, Oregon and Washington. And you know, there's like it, it doesn't really amount to much, even if you do manage to get consistent hours, which most people don't. Week to week, there's not a lot of consistency. There's no guarantee that you'll have the hours that you need in order to to pay all of your utility bills and your rent and then provide for your family. And I think there's also this idea that most of the people that work uh, in fast food and that work for Burgerville specifically are like having their first employment experience. And that is like, I mean, you just like walk into a Burgerville and you realize that that's not true. There's, there's like, there's people who are immigrants that are, a lot of my coworkers are like people that are just trying to support families. They're single parents. They're people that are going to school. They're people that are trying to get their GED. Um, so these aren't like high schoolers, that are like having their like obligatory first employment experience and are coming from like an overall middle-class background. These are people who are like, like living kind of on the poverty line and are struggling. And when hours get cut, when people get fired, there's 
not any sort of recourse, not until, um, you know, the, the organizing has started happening and only then, you know, has it become apparent to some folks and just like a small portion at that, the people that are willing to like stand up and start organizing and start talking about the, the conditions at these, at these stores, um, with these jobs that like there, there, there is recourse, but it takes a lot of organizing and it, it involves taking risks. It involves walking off the job and, and demonstrating that there, you know, there's a, there's a certain level of like dignity. There's a certain like bottom line that like people can't really get pushed past without collective action being taken. And I think like, hopefully Burgerville is starting to see that and hopefully people across the States are starting to see that. Um, but you know, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. It, it, it oftentimes I think feels like a very, we're a very small and like you said, kind of like isolated or insular insulated unit far away from like uh, a lot of the attention of other labor movements happening elsewhere. Speaking of which, uh, when people think of fast food worker organizing, they're going to think of fast food horde here in New York City, which has sort of spiraled into the whole nationwide Fight for 15 phenomenon. SEIU, mm-hmm. as you know, has been at the helm of that. And uh, here you guys are, the little industrial workers of the world, right? And um, and you're, you're kind of going your own way in some ways, but of course you are giving a, a big nod to uh, to the Fight for 15, and you're, you're obviously in alignment with, with those general goals. Can you talk about your tactics and maybe how they differ from some of the more mainstream, if you can call it that, uh, fast food industry worker organizing that we've been seeing, which of course is had its own gains as well as its own setbacks um, over the past few years. Right. Um, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, like, do a good, like, comparison to those other movements, those other fights. I personally don't, like, feel like I have the awareness to to draw some, some parallels there. But, um, you know, we do maintain that we need... Uh, at least like a $5 an hour raise in order to have a living wage. And um, I think there's like a lot of alignment in terms of like the, the living conditions and the working conditions that fast food workers at Burgerville have to put up with. Uh, there's like, there's, there's safety hazards, like fast food work still is like a hazardous play, uh, workplace. You know, there's like, there's a lot of like change in technology and in like safety um, requirements that are like put forward by like Bully and OSHA. And there's still a long way to go in, in the way of like trying to, I guess, make sure that those are like upheld and that people feel safe. Uh, But in, in terms of like, how our campaign and our tactics compare to other to other movements around the country um i think it it feels like we are kind of working and trying to do more with less uh you know like the iww is at this point like not a very well funded uh entity so we've ha- been having to do a lot of the fundraising that I think like larger unions and uh, larger organizations with more resources to draw from don't necessarily have to do in the same way that we have had to. So that's like involved grassroots fundraising, like, using our like personal networks and like really like mining those and, and probing those and trying to figure out like how we can leverage what we have um, already existing to to raise funds, whether that's through like online um, campaigns or whether that's like sending some workers or organizers on like speaking tours locally or not 
you know, I th- we, we this past winter sent a couple of organizers around um, some schools on the East Coast, which was like helpful. We've been raising a lot of funds in preparation for the strike and boycott that just happened that we just called. And we couldn't be doing that organizing unless we did have those funds ready. We're essentially like using every opportunity we can to to try to save money so we can pay workers the wages they are missing by going on strike, by walking out. And that's like, that's really labor intensive. That's really taxing. Um, but it's something that we're willing to do. Mm-hmm. So do you have a strike fund? Do you have dues? Yeah, yeah, we have dues. Um, the IWW has dues. So uh, for joining the Burgerville Workers Union as like a Burgerville worker, we don't require that workers pay dues. And oftentimes that that issue is kind of like a a difficult one for for workers to deal with. It's oftentimes... A, kind of a deal breaker because even like a $5 a month membership fee is like $5 that's coming out of like childcare or coming out of like basic grocery expenses. And it's not something that like, that's a priority, honestly, for a lot of people. I think a lot of people in, in kind of like holding all of these different uh, basic survival necessities and in like portioning out the the income that they have like as important as organizing is and like fighting for improvements in quality of life are it's it's not a it's not a priority compared to other things eating eating and uh and having a place to sleep um really takes takes precedence um when when you're really working paycheck to paycheck and and I guess you know that's those are the circumstances that you're trying to change where do you guys go from here you decided to call a strike um that that lasted a few days now everyone is back at work um there doesn't Mm -hmm. seem to have been any retaliation so far so you know the strike was not enough and you're gonna have to keep on applying pressure somehow so so what do you do after this yeah, um, you know, we have a boycott that just got called, and I think that that's something that we've been building up toward for a very long time. And so we're going to be applying pressure in that way and and kind of spreading the awareness beyond, like, the Portland left, beyond the labor movement, like, into, like, more of the mainstream, that, like, Burgerville is not the company that they purport to be. Their, their marketing, their brand is not an honest one um their values of like localness sustainability those those things aren't in keeping with the way that they treat their workers and i think more more people are seeing that more people are starting to question that and that's something that we're going to be shifting a lot of our focus to organizing around so just kind of getting the everyday person to like question their decision to walk into a burgerville and and buy their meal there thinking that they're like you know having this like conscience easing choice of like eating there over at mcdonald's or wendy's or whatever other establishment happens to be like across the street there's not a a real like fundamental difference and oftentimes burgerville's paying their employees less than those larger chains and so i i think if you like go on to like some of the the Burgerville uh, social media pages, you're starting to see that like seep into the the discussion, the the threads and the the comments. And so we're hoping that at a certain point soon, ideally, that uh, Burgerville stops trying to uh, you know refute and reject and kind of cover everything up and starts actually considering the the impact of their policy and the reaction to workers organizing and and demanding improvements in wages and working conditions and scheduling. And you're also seeking health care and protections for immigrant workers and and these other things that you don't always make it into standard collective bargaining agreements or um, basic basic pay packages for for, uh, fast food workers, right? Totally, yeah. I mean, one thing that I think gets overlooked a lot is the fact that Burgerville does um a lot of the work of 
Immigration and Customs Enforcement for them. They they use a program called E-Verify, which essentially, uh, before they hire someone, they run their name through a system, and it you know gathers their immigration status, and they don't hire people. Uh, they 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 pay to use the service. I'm I'm pretty sure. I'm not positive on that actually, but um, they don't have to be using it. They opt into it, and there's like there are, there's a real like level of conservatism and like uh, racism institutionalized in that decision to keep using that um, that system to screen people based on their immigration status. We don't think that it should matter whether someone's immigration status is in question or or not but clearly burgerville you know bureaucrats burgerville policymakers and people at corporate think that is important so we've put that into our um our demands that they stop using e-verify and that's going to be something that we won't um that we won't stop demanding until they they cease the use of that service that was Kanan Schlesinger, an organizer with the Burgerville Workers Union in Portland, discussing their recent strike. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for everybody's favorite segment. Arg! I wish I'd written that. This was a pretty good week for labor stories. I had several args that I wanted to use, but ultimately I am going with friend of the show Alex Press's piece at The Nation, White Collar Unionization is Good for All Workers. Alex was writing in response to a piece at The Atlantic that ruffled a lot of feathers by arguing about a class divide in the labor movement. Other than continuing the fundamental misunderstanding of what class even is that Americans seem so great at, the Atlantic piece isn't really worth delving into here, but I am happy that Alex took up this particular thread from it, because it's one that I think needs discussing more often when we talk about class in this country. Researchers tend to use a having or not having a college degree as being the dividing line between working and middle class, but that is increasingly not a very good metric to use. As more people get degrees, the value of those degrees actually goes down, not up. And while the Atlantic writer interpreted degree-having workers seeking union protections as a sign that those workers are safe and happy, Alex points out that the story is actually just the opposite. Union campaigns are actually hard, even, I should note from experience, at a left-wing publication that is explicitly pro-union in its pages. They are almost never undertaken just for funsies because you can. They are undertaken because the workers have problems they want fixed and power imbalances they want corrected. Alex writes, quote, It's true that millennials have a more favorable view of unions now than they did in 2010. As the Economic Policy Institute reports, 76% of the increase in union membership in 2017 was workers under 35 years old, even though this group accounts for less than 40% of total employment. But that this attitude reflects their work experience, not their entitlement. Millennials earn 20% less than boomers did at the same age. Far more of these individuals work in, quote, pink colors sectors, education and healthcare, sectors that have doubled in size since 1990 and which contain the country's most militant unions, than in the niche digital media sector that often draws attention. In truth, this is the story about how the erosion of working conditions is leading student debt-saddled employees to identify with the working rather than the managerial class. End quote. She also notes that the failure of high-profile union drives in the South, which we've talked about on this podcast, of course, most recently with Chris Brooks on episode 132, isn't just a quirk of geography, but a reality of right-to-work America, a highly professionalized union-busting industry, and a history of racism that has made the workforce all too easy to splinter. The proletarianization of the white-collar labor force, rather than another source of division or further evidence of polarization, is in fact another indicator that more and more of us are struggling while a tiny handful of people at the top scoop away all the profits. And this is still true, no matter how much Mark Zuckerberg lost in the stock market crash this week, or how much Elon Musk spent shooting his car into space for some unexplainable reason. It is another reason for us to come together rather than to split apart. 
Such hyping of division serves only to discourage workers from seeing themselves as workers at all. As Alex writes, quote, racked with guilt over their relative privilege, these workers discount their best route to strengthening other workers' power. In fact, framing some workers' efforts to organize as antagonistic to other workers may sound familiar to those who've organized a union. It's the language of the boss. My pick for ARG this week is by Gina Belafonte in the New York Times. It is a driver's suicide reveals the dark side of the gig economy. We all know that being a cab driver in New York is a tough slog, from dealing with drunk strangers, vomiting in the back seat, to stingy tippers, to the occasional mugging. It can be a rough ride. But when's the last time you really struck up a friendly conversation with your driver and asked how they were doing? These days, the economic hardship and harsh working conditions are having perhaps their worst impact on drivers' inner emotions. The intense loneliness and isolation that comes with the job surfaced with the suicide of black car driver Doug Shifter this week, and it showed how the abuses of neoliberalism, the disruption of Silicon Valley and Uber, and poverty are driving many drivers into fatalistic desperation. Belafonte approaches the suicide as a singular tragedy that reflects a deeper, insidious trend across New York and many other cities in low-wage industries, established service industries that were once seen as okay jobs, and being a taxi driver was once a pretty good way to make a living in New York City. Um, They're being thrown into turmoil by the invasion of big tech competitors who push for massive deregulation and undermine workers' livelihoods by pushing down wages and ramping up a race to the bottom of competing for the lowest possible price at the expense of making people work for less money. Belafonte notes, quote, in 2013, there are 47,000 for hire vehicles in the city. Now there are more than 100,000, approximately two-thirds of them affiliated with Uber. Belafonte also ties this back to an ongoing struggle to organize for hire drivers across the city, led by a friend of the podcast, Berebi Desai, with the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. Although the alliance is known for its militancy and its mass public actions, the suicide of Shifter shows a more personal side of the toll that many drivers are paying for the neoliberal assault of big tech. She writes, quote, while Uber has sold that disruption as positive for riders, for many taxi workers, it has been devastating. Between 2013 and 2016, the gross annual bookings of full-time yellow taxi drivers in New York, working during the day when fares are typically highest, fell from $88,000 a year to just over $69,000. Medallions, which grant the right to operate a taxi in New York City, We're now depreciating assets and drivers who had borrowed money to pay for them once a sound investment strategy were deeply in debt. Ms. Desai was routinely seeing grown men cry, and she had become increasingly concerned about the possibility that they would begin taking their lives. And tragically, that came true in the example of Doug Shifter. We don't know how many more drivers are committing suicide each year in less spectacular ways. He did it publicly as an act of protest. But one thing about the story of Shifter is that it's not just about an angry worker protesting the system. The problems he suffered also hit a really personal kind of trauma that the industry imposes silently on workers every day. And it also comes down to the lack of resources available to help drivers cope with some of these hardships. The isolation and despair grows particularly acute when you're driving endlessly in circles around the city at night with an empty car, never knowing how much you'll go home with, maybe nothing at all, and maybe you're not even sure if you yourself will get home safe tonight. There have been reports not only of violent crime but racial abuse against Muslim and South Asian drivers in recent years, and the industry remains notoriously unsafe compared to many others. Those problems, of course, can come with the territory of being a cabbie in New York, but when you've lost your health insurance, when your income is dried up, when you're deep in debt to pay for your car, and you come from a male-dominated industry where social interaction is usually limited to just exchanging cash with a passenger every few minutes, And it's easy to see why drivers like Shifter, 
who were once perhaps much better off were just expressing in the worst possible way the psychological consequences of a struggle that all drivers are facing. There will be calls not to politicize Shifter's death, not to bring his personal tragedy into a battle over regulations, but Desai put out a call on Twitter for drivers to not just mourn, but to organize. We need to organize. We need a cap on the number of vehicles in the streets. Yellow and green cab fares should be the rate floor so drivers can enjoy the fruits of their labor. Shifter, unfortunately, didn't live long enough to enjoy the fruits of his labor, just the bitterness of it. But he was also an activist, and in a way, the Alliance is now going to continue his legacy. While his mental health might have been a personal problem, it spoke to both a lack of support and resources for vulnerable drivers across the industry, as well as the devastation of that industry's disruption. His tragedy was inherently political because politics were behind his death. And his tragic end shows that even for the most politically conscious workers out there who do take action, a sense of helplessness and isolation can consume you in the end. So it's important for all of us who are involved in this fight to understand that frustration with the system can never be a reason for you to surrender your life to it. If you're going through similar kinds of problems, remember to reach out to others in the movement so we can all collectively have the strength to keep going. For one driver, it was too late, but he had at least the wisdom to show that even if he had hit a point of no return, the rest of us still have a long road ahead on the way to justice. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.